You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6pm on October 8, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Let's, uh, let's turn to God's Word again, and we're going to read from Job chapter 1. It's a long uh, chapter, so just be patient as we get through it, but it tells a story, it's narrative. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made him a a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone 
have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May the Lord bless this reading to us. Would you pray with me again? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these words, as we consider the the narrative of this first chapter of Job, we ask, Lord, that you would give us a clearer understanding and what this means. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Job is perhaps one of the uh, one book that most people will find indeed puzzling. As such, people will tend to avoid it rather than give it give it the attention that it deserves. And so the book of Job belongs to what is described in the Old Testament as the wisdom literature. It's one thing to have wisdom. It's another thing to obey God's word and to live righteously. One of the big big ideas of the book of Job is that bad things can happen to good people. The book of Job shows us how to respond when bad things happen. A few years ago when I was doing theological studies, I did a course under Ed Walsh. I actually did that course again as a refresher just, uh, uh, just recently. Ed Walsh, an American theologian from the Reformed Theological Seminary in the USA. And so he was the lecturer at our college. On one occasion he threw this uh, he, he said this throwaway phrase that bad things don't happen to good people. Now, I'm talking about something that happened about 10 years ago. To be fair, I can't uh, remember the full context, but when the break came for that particular lecture, I was up there to speak to him. I approached him and we discussed the statement he made. And of course, those of you who know my story um, would understand that for him to say that, that was a little close to home. So I reminded him of Job. And of course, I didn't need to do that. He would have known about Job. But then I explained to him about my late wife, Jude's circumstance of having early onset Alzheimer's. Now, there's one thing that I can honestly say, and I've said this more than once, that during Jude's illness, whilst I was sad and we both grieved, and we grieved with tears shared together, there was never a moment that we became angry with God. And during that time of trial, I never wanted to bring discredit to the Lord, to hold a grudge or to blame him for not healing Jude or for even allowing her to catch this disease at a young age. I prayed that I would never be angry with God. And through this journey, I wanted our family, I wanted our friends who were mostly not believers to see that in the providence of God, people might still see 
that our Lord is sovereign, that they might see his majesty and his glory. Yes, of course, you can question and wonder, why? And that's a legitimate question to, to ask. But I learnt that any contemplation in that direction was just pure speculation. Why was her life cut short? A person who was very much loved, a person who was very much appreciated and used of God. Indeed, she was especially a beautiful woman, a wonderful, loving daughter and sister and wife and mother. Now, I can say to you right now, quite categorically, that I don't have the wisdom of Solomon and I don't have the wisdom of Job. And I suspect that you don't either. However, let's continue. Now, aspects of this, of, of Job, may seem trouble. They may seem troubling. So if you ever read the book, have you ever wondered what's going on here? What does it mean? Now, I want to say that Job's story is a great story. It's a very moving story as it unfolds on what happens to Job and how he responds during this time of testing. See, we've only just got into one chapter. There's about 40 chapters. Everyone can relate to some degree with this story. And it's my prayer that should some calamity come to you, that you'll be able to respond as Job did. First of all, everyone knows that Job was a very patient man. We're reminded in James chapter 5, verse 11, which tells us, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You see, you have to, this is one book, you, you don't just read the first couple of chapters, you have to read it right through it and then get to the end. But when we get into the story of Job, we sense that Job wasn't always patient. He grew increasingly impatient. But James doesn't mean being passive or inactive, but persevering, that is to stand firm, to keep the faith, to keep going in the faith, even when things might seem against you. And this is something we should realise in the current spiritual climate in Australia. Now verse 1 gives us a very clear indication of what type of man Job was. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. We're told later in uh, in, 20, in 28, 28, that is chapter 28, that to fear God is an act of wisdom. The book of Job is about wisdom, just like uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Song of, Songs and Ecclesiastes. They all form part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. But what does that mean? The wisdom that's given here is more than knowledge. It's more than facts and figures. 
The wisdom books show us how to live as God intends us to live. Job, then, is a very practical book. It deals with life issues and it tells us the best way to respond to life issues. Therefore, everyone can and should be able to identify with this book in some way or other. It does ask those great and tricky questions like why? Or why me? Or why now? Or why in this way? Why do bad things happen to good people? Perhaps you've asked this question, as I certainly have, when life turns bitter, where is God? When dreams are shattered, why doesn't God intervene? When nightmares become reality, why doesn't God seem to say something? And some people today and in the past have thought of God as the cosmic sadist. But as Christians, we know that it's wrong to think like this. But sadly, we do secretly think it sometimes, if we're honest. Now, Job 1 focuses on three characters. I'm not sure if you can identify who the characters are in, in Job 1, but there's God, there's Satan, and who do you think the third character is? Job. <laughs> okay, yes, there's servants mentioned and children, but they're the three main characters. And Job is introduced to us uh, coming from us. Now, we don't know where Uz is. Maybe it was somewhere in the Arabian desert, perhaps. He's not an Israelite, but a representative of humanity. We're not told anything about his parentage when, or later his offspring. He has no lineage. He's a nominated, uh, he's, he's, um, Anonymity is meant to help us identify with him. Now, the introduction in chapter 1 is written for our benefit. Job was unaware of the cosmic drama that unfolded in chapter 1, even though it concerns him and his family and his possessions. In the narrative, there are only two testimonies to Job's character. The first is given by the author in verse 1, and the other testimony is given by God himself in verse 8. God tells us that Job was a godly man. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And we need to remember that. Four words describe his godliness. He's blameless. He's upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. Job had a healthy respect for God. Now, not to fear God is actually a sickness of the soul. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord here, this is a reverent fear. This is not a, afraid of a, a boogeyman fear. This is a reverent fear. It's an appreciation of God's majesty held before our eyes as we live our lives every day. To be anxious in fear that something bad is going to happen, well, that's not necessarily the fear we're talking about. Job had a great God and he knew it. When we fear God, as we're told in Psalm 34 verse 9, it says, Fear the Lord, 
You, his holy people, for those who fear him, lack nothing. We will have nothing else to fear. As Calvin says in uh, this chapter, there is nothing better than to be the subject, than to be subject to the majesty of God. Job was godly and it showed he was a, a man of spiritual and moral integrity. He bore the distinguishing marks of true religion and therefore God calls Job my servant. And all of this provides for us corroboration to Job's plea of innocence. Now later in the book, as you read through the book, his friends will accuse him. They'll accuse him that he committed all kinds of sins and indiscretions but we know that whatever the reason is for Job's suffering, it's not directly connected to any sin in him. Ezekiel 14 verse 14 and verse 20 mentioned that Job alongside Daniel and Noah, they mentioned Job as widely known men of God. It's all the more shocking then that this man of all people should suffer in the way that he does. We all know that behind every evil lies the figure of Satan. We know this, but we too often forget it. That's why the Bible keeps reminding us that from the beginning, when sin entered the world alongside with pain and sickness, the devil was there, wasn't he? Satan had something to do with it. But in the Old Testament, Satan isn't mentioned that often. Apart from here in the opening chapters, the only other chapters that mention his work in any detail are given in Genesis uh, 3 and Zechariah 3. And you might wonder what Satan's name means. It means to bear grudge or to oppose. Here it's used with the definite article, that is it's got the in front of it, the Satan. It's a title as much as it is a name. He is the adversary, the adversary. One of the first things that puzzles us about this story is that Satan is in the presence of God. Several truths emerge that will help understand what's being said here. First, in response to the question, where is this taking place? That is, where exactly is Satan presenting himself before God? As we read in verse 6, we can only conclude that we don't know. We're not told. You might not like that answer. I do not know. And no one else does either. But we do know that this place isn't heaven. Satan cannot come into heaven. No sin or evil can step across the threshold of that holy place, but Satan, of course, is somewhere. And what is far more important is the question, why is he there? Satan, along with the angels, the Hebrew reads, sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, as we read verse 6. Satan has to give an account of himself as we read in verse 7. He doesn't have ultimate authority. He's reporting to God. You get that? 
He's not acting autonomously. His power is a delegated power. That tells us immediately that his power is constrained. He cannot do as he pleases. His malice is under check. May not appear like that sometimes to us, but whatever wickedness he can design, it's always less than he might desire. So we should take comfort in that. As Satan answers God, he betrays something of his character. You see, he's a vagrant. He's a vagabond. He's someone that roams through the earth. He goes back and forth. He spends his time wandering to and fro. He can never say, this is my home. Philosophically, this tells us that Satan's ultimate reality and power isn't on par with God. There's no equality between good and evil. Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, God holds the key. You see, God holds the key. Trials come as a result of Satan's malice. Job was unaware of that, of course. He never gives Satan a mention or maybe even a second thought. And that's one of Satan's tricks. Satan's happy if we never give him a moment's thought. It's here that he can get on with his work without hindrance. We sometimes make too little of Satan and sometimes we make too much of him. But trials cannot simply be attributed all to Satan. They can be attributed to him but not solely to him. It's God who brings up the possibility of Job's temptation to Satan as we read in verse 8 and then in verse 12 and then later in chapter 2 verse 3 which we will deal with in later time. And we should contemplate this. This is important to understand. The ultimate authority for this trial is God's and not Satan's. When bad things happen to God's people, and you won't like to hear this, God did it. Now that's a very disturbing message. We get the impression that Satan hadn't even thought about Job until God mentioned him. But we must remember that Satan, of course, is a cynic. He always misreads and he twists everything. He lies because he's the father of lies. He says in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? In effect, the only reason why Job doesn't curse you is because of the things that you've given him, he argues. Take these things away and Job will curse you face to face. And that gives us a clue, of course, to what Satan is about. His ambition is to curse God. He will do it himself and he will attempt to get others to join him and curse God also. That's what he lives for. It's hard to imagine a being so utterly given over to evil as to make this the goal of everything one does. It's just like the naughty boy who, when he's uh, disciplined, he then brings up the dirt on everyone else and dobs the other boys in. So they'll be punished as well. But the eternal frustration that Satan has to live with 
is that he can never accomplish what he desires. His abilities are still limited. He's not uh, omnipotent. He's a finite creature. God sets boundaries around what he can and cannot do as we read in verse 11. Job can be tested domestically and, and circumstantially, but he himself must remain unharmed. So Satan is given his rules of testing and Satan can only stand and wait. And as we come to close of time, in, as we read in Revelation 20, we read that Satan is released, but only to fulfil God's plan and his defeat is certain. C.S. Lewis says we can make too much of the devil. The disturbing thing for some of us is the realisation that, that behind what happens here, Job's loss of his family and possessions, that this comes from the hand of God. Now this is the problem, this is the dilemma. This isn't so much about the suffering of Job. We're kind of used to that. We see examples of that every day in some shape or form. And it isn't the so-called problem of evil either or even solving the issue of where did sin come from. No, the problem here is God. Stating it like that is shocking, friends, isn't it? How can God be a problem? But the issue we have to face is this. And in the following chapters of Job isn't how God can allow this to happen. No, it's even stronger than that. It isn't even, as Calvin observes so often in his Institutes of Christian Religion, a matter of God allowing as though God was somehow passive in all of this. God actually instigates this trial. He puts the idea in Satan's head. God sets the rules. That's the problem. When we read from verse 13 that these Sabaeans, and then in verse 17, these Chaldeans came, and then in verse 16 and, and verse 19, by what ensures my call today, acts of God, this is God's doing. In one afternoon, all of Job's life is literally taken away from him. And to understand this, we have to consider that the answers to the great Questions of life are not found in this world. They're only found in heaven. Now this should remind us that Job is primarily a book about God. It is the issue we have to return to again and again as we unfold its message. It isn't so much about why we suffer, but why does God make us suffer? And when we come full circle to the end of this book, we observe that Job is given a revelation of the majesty of God. Rather than any answer to his many and his pointed questions, we're given a revelation to the majesty of God. There is nothing better, observed Calvin, than to be subject to the majesty of God. But more will come of this later. For now, we need to look at Job's initial response to his trials. And it's amazing. 
Job's response in verse 20 is to worship. It's always appropriate to worship. Job sees, seems utterly submissive and he seems servant-like. It's the epitome of trust. And so he worships. And then in, in, his words are stunning in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You've probably heard that verse repeated time in and time out at many funerals. All of us who love God desire to respond to trials with this sort of attitude, with this sort of thinking. Lord, when difficulties come, no matter what they may be, help me to say what Job said. And these words recognise that this world isn't our home and that God's purposes transcends this life. Yes, we are here for a time and we're here for a purpose. God has a plan for every one of us. But this isn't our home. In reality, everything we have comes from God. But we are but stewards that we must never attribute to God anything that is evil. And you might ask, wait a minute. Have we not already seen that God is the one who instigates this trial? Yes, that's right. But Job didn't know that. Nevertheless, here's a mystery. God foreordains everything that comes to pass. Trials and sin come to pass. But God is not the author of sin. God does not tempt us to sin. God does not condone sin. This reminds us of the Westminster Confession in Chapter 3, Section 1. It says this, this statement, God from all eternity did by the most and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin. Sometimes all we can do is state the principle logic evades us. I want to tell you a story. We all heard of Stonewall Jackson. Now, David, of course, he's a studier of uh, the Civil War in the US. But the Civil War in uh, the 1860s in the um, United States, Stonewall Jackson was one of the generals in the, in the South. In one, of, in one of his stories, he is a moving account of a time when he was 30 years of age. Nice to remember when I was 30 years of age, that's well back. When his baby son and his wife, Ellie, had died. You see, his baby son was stillborn. And a short time later, after giving birth to a, their stillborn son, his wife hemorrhaged and she died very quickly. Jackson wrote to his sister Laura this statement. I've been called to pass through the deep waters of affliction. 
but all has been satisfied, he wrote. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is, will, it is his will that my dear wife and child should no longer abide with me. And as it is his holy will, I am perfectly reconciled to the sad bereavement, though I deeply mourn my loss. My dearest Ally breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day on which the child was born. Not alive. Oh, the constellations of religion. I can willingly submit to anything as God strengthens me. Oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commandments. And he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement for good. I am reconciled to my loss and have joy in hope of a future reunion when the wicked cease from trembling and the weary are at rest. I can just imagine the uh, southern accent as that could have been said. Beautifully expressed. Job would have said the same. Isn't this our blessed hope? No matter what questions we ask and are never answered, it doesn't matter. You see, let us join with Job and affirm with all our hearts the absolute sovereignty of our God. He rules, he reigns. And if calamity comes, let your tears flow freely. And thirdly, trust in the goodness of God and let him be your treasure and your joy because we know, we know with absolute certainty and we spoke about this this morning, God keeps his promises. We know that he's still in command, he still sits on his throne. Our God reigns, he rules, he is sovereign over us and all the world, over all his creation. You see, nothing happens out there in outer space without our God knowing about it. To the tiniest quantum particle, my science has left me now, he knows it all. And we know who wins. And guess what, friends? It isn't Satan. That's the assurance that we have in Christ as our Saviour, who's defeated death and sin and evil through his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And so may we all hold to Job's benediction. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, knowing that one day he's going to call each of us home and we're going to be called home into his very literal presence. And that's a thought we should always keep in mind. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we, we just ask, Lord, that as we contemplate the story of Job, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would help us to keep the faith, no matter what circumstances may come upon any one of us, 
no matter what challenge, no matter what trials, Lord, that we would keep the faith, that we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Lord, would you be gracious to enable us to do that, to look into your face, to turn to you in all things, in the good and the bad. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.